0: God, and as we proclaim that truth, God, we are moved as we are reminded of the truth of your gospel and the power of what you have done for us. And so, God, we thank you for that. God, we pray that your spirit would continue to move in this place. We love you. We praise you. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Well, it is wonderful to see everyone here this morning on this beautiful Lord's Day. And if you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. Our messages these next couple of weeks are going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. We're we're in an exposition of the book of Philippians, uh, but in light of the 500th anniversary of the beginning uh, of the Protestant Reformation that's going to occur here in nine days, Uh, we're going to be focusing on uh, the Reformation this Sunday and next Sunday. Um, In the last couple of years, uh, my wife Cheryl and I have had the privilege of visiting some of the the key sites of the Reformation in Europe. Uh, Back in May of 2015, Uh, we visited uh, Wittenberg, Germany. Now, we almost didn't get there because while we were in Berlin, all the trains uh, shut down uh, all throughout Germany. And uh, so we tried to get a bus, but all the buses were taken. And uh, we finally took a cab from Berlin to Wittenberg. And um, the guy that was driving our cab was this uh, Palestinian guy. And Cheryl thought we were going to get driven away and waylaid somewhere the whole time she was worried about that. But it was in it. For $300, you could go see Wittenberg today. We'd do it. So anyway, it was quite a trip getting there. Uh, But it was a deeply moving experience for me, uh, thinking how one man there, Martin Luther, uh, staked it all on God and his word and impacted uh, the entire world from a small village in Germany. I mean, it was a delightful day that Cheryl and I had there in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, One of the greatest days, really, of my life, I'd have to say. It was gorgeous weather, perfect that day, no wind, a nice cool day. And then we walked into the city, that very first thing that we saw in the old part of the city, of course, was to the, the castle church door on October the 31st of 1517. Um, Luther's buried inside there, and there was a, a huge banner hanging there already at that time that said Luther 2017. And I can just imagine what's going on over there right now. Well, we saw the Church of St. Mary. We got to go there. I'll show you a picture of something there in a little bit. Uh, but it was uh, the mother church of the Reformation built in the late 13th century. Uh, it's the church where Luther preached. Luther was married there. Um, Luther's funeral sermon was preached there. Uh, We got to see the house of Martin Luther and his wife, Catherine of Bora. Um, It was a former monastery. We saw uh, the the last robe that Luther wore hanging there. We saw the the table where he gathered with his students, and they carried out what was called uh, table talk. Uh, We saw the house of Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, his co-laborer and his close friend of Martin Luther. And we saw the study where Philip Melanchthon died. We sat outside and ate lunch out there in the shadow of St. Mary's Church, the, the, the mother church of the Reformation. I mean, it was just perfect weather. You couldn't have asked for anything better. I'll never forget that day. It's an indelibly etched uh, upon my mind. And then this summer, Cheryl and I got to go to Prague and Czech Republic. I got to go to Geneva, Switzerland, which are two other key Reformation sites. I'll refer to those a bit later here. But all the time that I was in those various places I've referred to here, I was thinking of you when we were there. And I was thinking of how excited I was to come back and tell you the significance of the things that we've seen. And now that day's finally come to be able to share some of these things with you. And this morning, what I want to do is give an overview of the Reformation. I want to look at the story of the Reformation. Now, we only have limited time this morning, so it's going to be very, very pared down. But just kind of a brief overview for our lives. And next week, we're going to focus more on Martin Luther and, uh, and the doctrines of salvation that were recovered during the Reformation. But I want to start out with... Uh, the story of the Reformation. You know, What was the Reformation? There maybe some of you here today, you don't even know what, and basically was a spiritual rebirth. It was a recovery of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles that occurred in the 16th century um, in Europe, in the, within the Catholic Church. All of these reformers had been part of the Catholic Church. But they, they came along and there was a recovery. They didn't discover these things, but they rediscovered them. They recovered these truths uh, that had been uh, layered over by many centuries in the Catholic Church. Two fundamental truths were recovered by the Reformers. Now, if you don't get anything else out of these two sermons, I want you to get this, that there's two main things about the Reformation. It was a Bible movement and it was a gospel movement. Those are the two key was recovered. Those are the two key points. The two things recovered by the Reformers were the supremacy of Scripture over tradition and over councils and over popes, if you will. That the Bible alone has the authority to bind the conscience of religion. But it wasn't just that they recovered as well the authority of the Bible, but also a deep and serious study of the Bible that people could study the Bible and they could understand what the Bible uh, had to say. So first and foremost, it was a Bible movement. Secondly, it was that salvation is not just by grace and not just through faith, but it's by grace alone, through faith alone. He was taught in that day, yeah, we're saved by grace and faith, but not alone. Works were added but it's by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So the Reformation hinged on two main issues. What is our authority? Because you have to start there, right? If you don't have the right authority, the right basis to evaluate things, then you're lost. So what's our authority and how can a person be right with God? How can we get to heaven? So the Reformation, first and foremost, was a by truth of the gospel was recovered. Now, out of the Reformation arose what are often called the five solas. You all have probably heard of these, most of you. Uh, the word sola is a Latin word for alone. And so these didn't come along. These weren't developed in the Reformation, but came out of it. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Uh, Solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. So we're saved based on the Scriptures alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That is a summary of really what was was taught and what was recovered uh, in the Reformation. And the key word is that word alone, because again, the Roman Catholic Church of that day taught grace and taught faith, but not alone. So it was a recovery of the authority and the study of the Bible and the truth of the Kind of tell a little bit of the story and focus in on the Bible. The next week, we're going to look at mainly Martin Luther and focus on what uh, they recovered through the Reformation about salvation, about the gospel. Let me just give you a little bit of context and and setting about the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, many of you have heard of him. We'll talk more about him next week. He uh, visited Rome in 1510. So again, we're going back, you know, 500 years. And of course, you can imagine as, as a young monk, uh, he was picked. out. When he got there, though, it was a massive, massive, colossal disappointment. I mean, it's an understatement. He walked to Rome all the way from his home in Germany. It would be a distance like from Arlington, Texas to Denver, a long journey. But what he encountered there was a corrupt church. In the late 15th, early 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church was desperately in need of reformation. Now, I could go on and read all kinds of things, but uh, one of the popes was named uh, Pope Alexander VI. Uh, The papacy was purchased by him in 1492. Of course, that's a familiar date when Columbus discovers the New World. But under him, he he was the beginning of a a family called the Borgias. Uh, Rome was, was the Las Vegas of its day just about Pope Alexander, Andrew, Alexander VI, it says, he had numerous children by his mistresses. He was rumored to have had another with his party-throwing, poison-ring-wearing daughter, Lucrezia, and is best remembered for his habit of throwing orgies in the Vatican and poisoning his cardinals. Now, that's one, one of the popes, a Borgia, uh, Pope Alexander VI. Rome, the, the Roman Catholic Church had fallen into shameless decadence, now, uh, Pope Leo X, who's the pope actually that excommunicates Luther from the Catholic Church in 1521, was ordained to the, to the papacy at the age of seven, and he was an agnostic. Now, think about that. You have a pope, and uh, when Cheryl and I were at St. Peter's, uh, uh, Peter's Basilica, and the man was an agnostic, he called Christ a fable or a myth, and yet he was one of the popes of that day. So, the Roman Catholic Church in that day lacked gospel vitality. It lacked biblical authority. It lacked moral integrity. Here's what Luther said about his trip to Rome. Hear it in order to believe it. It is an ordinary saying that if there is a hell, Rome is built upon it. It is an abyss from which all sins proceed. Rome, once the holiest city, was now the worst. Let me get out of this terrible dungeon. I took onions to Rome and brought back garlic. I mean, that was the situation there. On September the 6th of 1520, in a letter to Pope Leo X, here's what Luther said about Rome and about the church there. The church of Rome has become the most lawless den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the very kingdom of sin, death, and hell, so that not even the Antichrist, if he were to come, could devise any addition to its wickedness. That's pretty serious, right? So the gospel there had been buried into corruption, selling uh, spiritual positions for money, selling indulgences, worshiping relics, dead men's bones. Now, the key issue for Martin Luther, though, was the issue of, uh, of indulgences. That was the key issue for him. And uh, by the way, here's a good, uh, a good picture of uh, the to do uh, primarily with the issue um, of indulgences. That was the big issue. And of course, I love this on that castle church right around the top of it there, written the words in German, There a mighty fortress is our God. A great hymn uh, we'll sing next time. Um, I, I got my slides out of order here. Let me find this. Here we go. Um, indulgences were really a key issue for Luther. What an indulgence was, is it was a piece of paper or a certificate which guaranteed the purchaser, the person for whom the, the indulgence was purchased, that a certain amount of time in purgatory would be remitted if you'd give some money. So that's basically, indulgences didn't forgive sin, but what they could do is they could get rid of some of the temporal consequences of sin. Now, I thought I'd put up here just a couple of the 95 feasts. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Now, what they were doing is they were going about raising money for St. Peter's Basilica. Now, it took a lot of money, And so they would go and they would sell these indulgences, these pieces of paper that would release either cut off your time or could release someone who'd already died from purgatory. And you imagine going to a town back then, obviously there's a lot of infant mortality, a lot of death that was occurring back then without modern medicine. You just lost your dear grandmother, uh, your your dear child had died. And they come and tell you that for a gift of money that you can release their soul from purgatory. It was the most shameless, really, kind of uh, of taking advantage and extortion of people. But people gave money to these indulgences. Here's one of Luther's other 95 theses. He says, again, why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than the money of poor believers? <laughs> now, you can imagine, as he's writing these things, this gets the ire uh, of, of the Catholic Church. But what Luther wanted to do was drain the religious swamp of Roman Catholicism. And so, Luther places these uh, 95 theses on uh, the, the, the door there, the castle door, uh, the door of the castle church there uh, in Rome. And again, these 95 theses were handwritten by Martin Luther in, in Latin. It was, it was 1,576 word, words, but it was a disputation. I mean, he, now again, there's you know there's uh, controversy among scholars. Did he really nail it to the door and all kinds of other things? But I'm going to go with the tradition that he nailed it to the door. A lot of people would say this wasn't unusual in that day. It was kind of like the, the, the bulletin board uh, of the community. So he goes and nails it there. And that's where the Reformation, the beginning of it, is traced to. October the 31st, 1517, when this 33-year-old monk um, who was a theology professor at the local university, nails these 95 theses uh, to the door there um, of the Cashel Church. And uh, you can see another picture of it here um, from a little further away. The original door burned in 1760. So uh, this is a door, and you can see today that the 95 theses are engraved on the door today, the new door that's been placed there, this this metal door. But what what Luther did is he sparked this Reformation that became the most important pivotal recovery of the authority of the Bible and the truth of the gospel since the first century. But here we have to remember something. Martin Luther had no idea nor any intention he was going to change the course of history. In fact, he's often been called a reluctant reformer. He had no desire to leave the Catholic Church at that time. He wanted to see the Catholic Church changed some of these things like indulgences and these other things. But what what God did through this God used what he did there, and God caused what he did to snowball under God's hand of providence, hauled in and, and interviewed and has debates and discussions with various leaders in the Roman Catholic Church. That becomes really the issue. Who has the authority, the final authority? Is it the Bible, or is it church councils and, and the Pope? That's really where the issue um, ultimately uh, leads to. Now, to back up a little bit uh, here and. the the Reformation. I want to look at some of the characters in the Reformation. Luther's the one we focus on, but long before Luther came along, there were some what I call ripples of the Reformation. And I want to just talk about a few people that were other people who were significant. Uh, One of them is John Wycliffe. Uh, John Wycliffe was known as the morning star uh, of the Reformation. Of course, the morning star is Venus. It appears in the sky early in the morning. So he's kind of really the beginning. Uh, point, technically, of what we call the Reformation. Uh, John uh, Wycliffe was a leading theologian at Oxford in England, and he came to the conclusion that all a person needed to do was study the Bible, that they didn't need to look to the Pope or councils or traditions, that the Bible was enough, that everything was to be judged by the Scriptures, not by a Pope or church councils. And he began to publicly identify uh, the Bible and not the Pope as the supreme source of authority. So he's over in Oxford in England, but he has a a collision with Rome, obviously. And he's told to stop teaching these things. His greatest contribution, though, was that he popularized the Bible. For the most part in that day, only Latin translations of the Bible, 10 months to copy a Bible. There are about 170 of those still in existence today. But the followers of Wycliffe who, who got their hands on Bibles were called lollards. It's an interesting word. The word they, they think the word probably means mumblers because they had the habit of secretly reading the Bible and then mumbling it to themselves. So what John Wycliffe does is he puts the Bible in the hands of people and he teaches people that they can understand the Bible and it's the Bible that's the final authority. Now John Wycliffe was slated to be killed by the Roman Church but he died before they could get to him. Fascinating story though about John Wycliffe. They hated Wycliffe so much that 40 years after he died, they exhumed his body from the grave and they dug up his bones and burned them because they believe if they burned his bones that would prevent his resurrection in the future. Which that's another false doctrine, right? But they they burned his bones and they threw threw the ashes into the Swift River, it's called. But there's a great story about this. And in his book, Rescuing the Gospel, uh, Erwin Lutzer says this. They not only condemned the writings of John Wycliffe in England, they demanded his body be exhumed and his ashes thrown into the Swift River. But as has often been pointed out, the Swift River flows into the Avon. The Avon eventually flows into the Severn, which flows to the Bristol Channels and then to the oceans of the world. Thus, the teachings of Wycliffe and the Bible he popularized flowed from one river to the next and eventually to the entire world. John Huss and his followers are the obvious example of the fact. The persecution cannot swift river, which dumps into another river, into another river, and ultimately goes out into the ocean. It's a picture of how God took uh, the teachings of Wycliffe and the Scriptures uh, to the whole world. So John Wycliffe is called the morning star um, of the Reformation. Um, Another luminary of the Reformation, I want to mention, is John Huss. You can spell his name. Sometimes it's one S, sometimes it's two S's. Uh, But John Huss, in 1348, there was a university established in Prague, The modern Czech Republic. It was called Bohemia back then. And what happened is students from from that day from Bohemia traveled to Oxford, England to study. And they encountered the teachings of John Wycliffe and brought those teachings back to Prague with them. And a man named John Huss was rector at Prague University, and he embraced the teachings of John Wycliffe. And he began to proclaim Reformation teaching here today. But his key issue was that the Bible is the basis for spiritual authority, not the Pope or human traditions. Of course, he was banned from preaching at Bethlehem Chapel any further. Um, Eventually, John Huss was condemned as a heretic by the Catholic Church. And I'd encourage you, you might get online sometime and read about, uh, about his martyrdom. He steadfastly refused, given many occasions to do so, to recant his teachings. He was burned at the stake on July the 6th of 1415. But here's a fascinating story. Not long before he died, uh, the word "huss" in their language of that day meant "goose." So his name was, a, was, was goose. And he said this not long before he died, "You can cook this huss. You can cook this goose, but within a century a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence." He's killed in July 14,15, 102 years later. As you can cook this goose, but within a century, there's going to be a swan who's going to arise, and you will not be able to silence uh, his singing. There's uh, a great statue to John Huss in uh, the center of the old square. What's fascinating is people walk by this statue day after day after day. They don't even know what it is. It's a statue of John Huss. And uh, at the base of the statue, um, it says there, it's written there, uh, great is the truth and it prevails. Great is the truth, and it prevails. What's fascinating is while we were there in Prague, we had a, a guide one of the days that took us around, and she just kind of brought this up on her own. Um, I asked her a couple of questions about spiritual things, but she brought this up. She said, 75% of the people in Czechoslovakia today, or at least in Prague, are atheists. And we asked her, we said, well, why is that? Come to church and stop teaching them these things, and so that's where, we, that's where we've ended up. And I thought, you think about how important it is to pass the baton of what we believe to the next generation. Uh, There's no success without succession. And I think about that. I thought about that as you walk around and see this, this 75% of the people there today are are atheists. And when you go there, you can just sense the oppression of it. It's a dark, dark place. Now, after John Huss, of course, the goose gets cooked. But after this, Martin Luther uh, rises. He's the swan. We're going to focus on Martin Luther in more detail next week, but Luther became convinced that Scripture alone was the supreme authority. The key issue was authority. Was it the Scripture or was it the church and was it the Pope? And here's what Luther said on one occasion, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a Pope or council without it. I say that neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. They must come uh, from the Scripture. And again, here's uh, the castle church. Here's where he hangs the, the, the 95 theses on the door there. Uh, this is the Church of St. Mary. Uh, it was called the Mother Church of the Reformations where Luther preached. Again, his funeral w- was, uh, was conducted there. Uh, one of my favorites uh, where you stand, and, and I got to, uh, to stand up there, by the way, behind where, where Luther preached. That was one of the, the highlights of, of my life to be able to stand there. But behind that altar is this picture. And I love this picture because there's Luther, and notice Luther has his left hand on the Bible. And, gee, the, the cross, Christ is hanging there on the cross, and you have the people there in the gallery. And Luther has a hand on the Bible, and he's pointing with his other finger over to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I thought, what, what a picture that is of what everyone should be who stands behind any pulpit anywhere. We have a hand on the Word of God, and we're pointing people uh, to the death and ultimately the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Luther's ministry was about. It was a ministry about the Bible, the authority of the Bible, and the truth of the gospel, uh, the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's what I want us to do at this church. And by God's grace, that's what we'll continue to do, is always keep our hand on the Word of God and our eyes on uh, that finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want this church to be. Now, we're going to talk about this next week, but, but really everything in Luther's life kind of comes to a, a culmination of what's called the Diet of Worms. He's in the city of Worms in Germany, and that was in, uh, in 1521. That's where the lines were really drawn, but I wanted to read this this morning because notice there when Luther's taking his stand, he thinks he may be killed, but notice his focus on the Bible. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, I will not retract anything, since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. For Luther, it was the Word of God that had freed him and had saved him. And he had no other security but the Scriptures. Luther ends up translating the Bible into German. He was actually kidnapped by some of his friends. They disguised him as a knight. They took him to the Wartburg Castle. While he's there, Luther in 11 weeks translates the New Testament. And during that time period, he battled confusion and depression and insomnia. You can imagine the spiritual warfare that was raging around him. But he translates the New Testament into German and it transformed Christianity in Germany as people began to be able to read the Word of God. For Luther, the Word of God was the final and the only authority. Here's a couple of great quotes from Luther about the Bible. A fiery shield is God's word of more substance and pure than gold, which tried in the fire loses nothing of its substance, but resists and overcomes all the fury of the fiery heat. Even so, he that believes God's word overcomes all. There's nothing, neither hell nor the devil. It was the word of God where Luther staked his claim. Here's one of my favorite quotes by Luther. He said this about the Bible. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses on it. I did nothing. The word did everything. It says, whether I was sleeping at night or drinking beer with my friends Philip uh, and and it was the Bible uh, that went out and did that great work. And we'll talk again more about Luther next time. Another key reformer you may not be as familiar with was Ulrich Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli. He was in Zurich, Switzerland. He brought the, the Reformation to Zurich. So you can see you've got the Reformation uh, in, in Germany, uh, the Reformation to, uh, in France with the French Huguenots. It spreads to, to Switzerland, uh, neighboring Switzerland. Again, a lot we could say about Zwingli, but he, he made a decision on January the 1st of 1519. He began teaching through the Bible, book by book. He got got away from the lectionaries and, and all the things that they'd been doing before, and he began preaching his way through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse. When he finished that, he went to the next book until he'd gone through the New Testament. All the people, undiluted, unadulterated, constantly. This was what Zwingli would be all about, and this is how Zurich would be reformed. The city of Zurich was reformed by the preaching of the Word of God consistently week after week after week, in the pulpit there of the great minster church, as it's known in Zurich, Switzerland. Zwingli was known as God's mercenary. I mean, he actually went out, finally at the end of his life, he went out and fought in a, in a battle against some Roman Catholics, and he was killed. Uh, Martin Luther is a very compassionate guy. He said uh, Zwingli deserved it. He shouldn't have gone out and done that. So even these Reformers, you know, these guys weren't uh, weren't, weren't perfect. He says, the Bible, not the Pope, is master. Of course, another one we all know of is is John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin brought the Reformation to Geneva, Switzerland. And really, it was the, the key city in many ways. Um, he was a very—he was known as the timid scholar, very introverted, very opposite from Luther, who was brash and outgoing. Picture—he's very gaunt and thin, always avoided the limelight, a very introverted person. But the contribution that Calvin made is again in Geneva, turned it into a, a Protestant church, and the gospel was preached there again and again, week after week. He preached the Bible, and that brought. Uh, Reformation to the city of Geneva. The rallying cry of the Reformation primarily in Geneva was after darkness, light. After all this gospel and the authority uh, of the Word of God. In fact, I'll show you a picture in a minute of the Reformation wall. In fact, I'll just go to it now. Um, The Reformation wall, right above there are the words post tenebrous lux, after darkness, light. All the darkness, the layers of darkness that had been placed there, the light had come uh, through the Word of God. Now, in this picture there at the Reformation wall, on the left there, you have William Farrell, then you have Calvin, then you have Theodore Beza, who was a friend of Calvin, then on the far right there is John Knox. Uh, John Knox was in in Scotland, and uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, tried to kill him, so he fled uh, to France. And since Geneva was right on the French-Swiss border, he ended up coming into contact with John Calvin, and he spent two years in Geneva. And of course, then he goes back to Scotland and leads the the, the Reformation there um, in Scotland. So you can see how uh, from Germany, it's it's with the French Huguenots, it's in Scotland, it's in Switzerland, Um, it's spreading throughout uh, the world of that day. And of course, it's brought to America. Um, in the early uh, uh, 1600s by the pilgrims by the, by, by the Pilgrims who came here. One comment, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but the guy on the left there, William Farrell, um, he, he was a fiery red-headed uh, preacher. He was called the French Firebrand. William Farrell would go into towns and he would preach the gospel. At one town he was in, they, were gonna, they, they threatened they were going to drown him. But he, let him, he said, well, let me talk first before you drown me. And so he talked for a moment, and the people were so convinced to his side, they began to turn against the Catholics. So he would get in debates with them. Several occasions, he would go to towns, and they wouldn't let him preach, and he would literally beat up the priests in the town and get in the pulpit and preach. I mean, the guy was a fighter. And that's why this is, it's fascinating, if you'll notice here, and I, this is beautiful to me. And Cheryl and I were there this last summer. I stood and looked at this for a long time. You've got Calvin, Beza, and Knox. Look at every one of them. What do they have in their hand? The Bible. The, the Reformation was a Bible movement. They all have the Bible there in their right hand. But notice Pharaoh, His Bible's in his left hand. And what's his right? What's his uh, right hand? It's a fist. The guy was a fighter man. He'd go duke it out with these priests and whip them if he had to to go and preach in their churches. Now, again, whether that was the best thing to do or not, I don't know. But that's what God did through this man. So uh, these are the things uh, that we see here. And, again, this is a, another just a clear, beautiful picture there of, this, of the Reformation. A well, huge, huge wall that stretches for, I don't know, several hundred yards across there. If you ever get to Geneva, uh, you want to you go and see that. It's a, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, memorial uh, to these men. Let me just mention a couple things about the significance of the Reformation. We'll close here this morning. Just for our lives to think about, well, here's a very important point. God uses all kinds of people, people with very different giftings and personalities. If you look at each of these Reformers and read their lives, they're very, very different. Yet God used them. Another important lesson from the Reformation, we all have feet of clay. We all do. If you read about the life of John Knox, John Knox could be very impulsive and very brash, and they said he could be a very unkind person in his life. Um, Luther, we don't have time to talk about this, was a virulent anti-Semite, and he used to be condemned for that, really. It was was terrible. Um, Sometimes he drank too much. Farrell was a fighter. Uh, Martin Luther's son studied theology, but he died as an alcoholic at the age of 34, Look, these men had feet of clay, they weren't perfect. But one of the things that's encouraging to me about that is God can take imperfect vessels who are frail and failing. And if we're committed to the word of God and to the gospel, God can use us. Now I'm not saying that this morning to cut us all slack and say, well, we can just go, you know, live ungodly lives and God can use us. But I do want us to know look, we're all imperfect as well, we're frail, we're failing. God can use us. We all have feet of clay. So did these men. But God took them up and He used them. We don't have to agree on everything to have to, to accomplish God's purposes. That's another good lesson for us. Uh, these men disagreed with each other strongly on the Lord's Supper. They even divided over that issue. All the way back then, they even disagreed on music. Who'd ever imagine that, right? Uh, Zwingli and those guys, they wouldn't allow musical instruments in the church. Luther loved having musical instruments. So they they disagreed about a lot of things. They didn't have to agree on everything to accomplish God's purposes. We stand on uh, the non-negotiables. And then the final thing to me that I learned from this is We are the heirs of the Reformation. We're the successors and the beneficiaries of what they did. We believe in the supremacy of the Scriptures. We believe the Bible is the final authority over us for doctrine and practice. That's why we teach the Bible. And we believe that God uses people who are committed to His Word and to the Gospel. Psalm 189, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. Back in Mark chapter 7, what did Jesus say to the people of his day? These people honor me with their lips, their heart is far from me, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. He was saying to them, you set aside the commandment of God Luther's day. And then down in verse 13, it says, thus you invalidate the word of God by your own tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Jesus said, look, it, it's not human tradition, it, it's the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures inspired by God's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be mature, uh, thoroughly furnished uh, for every good work. On and on and on we could go reading verses about the scriptures. Look, the rallying cry of the Reformation was after darkness, Light. Today we're in danger of afterlight darkness, because sola scriptura today has become sola cultura. So what does the culture teach? Or as one person described it, sola experientia. It's experience and it's culture now that has taken precedence over the Bible. We need a new Reformation today. We need to to simply preach the Bible and preach the Bible simply, to teach people the Bible. That's the legacy of the Reformation, to teach and to live uh, the Word of God. Our job is not to be new or novel or original when it comes to doctrine or morality. It's to go back to the Scriptures. Well, H.A. Ironside said it well. If it's true, it's not new, and if it's new, it's not true. That's what we're to do. Billy Graham back... um, In his early days, in his Los Angeles crusade, a one Episcopalian rector after Billy Graham had preached at his crusade said this, I believe this young man is putting the church back 50 years. Billy Billy Graham, who usually didn't respond to critics, felt like he couldn't let that one go. And he said, I heard someone say that they believe I put the church back 50 years by my preaching. He says, I'm afraid I failed. I'd hope to put the church back 2000 years. And I like that. That's what the Reformers wanted to do. They wanted to put the church in their day back 1,500 years, back to Jesus, back to the apostles, back uh, to the Word of God. And it's our desire today to constantly be putting the church back, if you will, 2,000 years, back to the, the teaching of the Scriptures. Martin Luther has a great little poem that summarized so well what he taught and believed and what we're talking about here this morning. He said, feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall be. legacy of the Reformation when it comes to the Bible. The Reformation, first and foremost, was a Bible movement. It was a Bible movement. It's back to the Scriptures um, as our authority. And we'll pick up next time with salvation, what they taught about salvation. It was a gospel movement, and we'll look at that next time. Let's pray together. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, we want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. We've talked a lot about the Bible, and the Bible tells us that the only way that you can have a relationship with God is through His Son. She'll so look to Him and be saved. And the, the Bible tells us that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is your sin bearer. He's the one who finished the work for you on the cross. I pray this morning, if you've never trusted in him, that you'll do that this morning before you leave. Father, for those of us who know you, we we look at these uh, men and we look at these events that you brought about, Lord, in your providence, your providential hand on history. And uh, Father, we thank you for the work that you did in their lives and through them. And Father, we pray that we'll be faithful to the legacy that they've left us a legacy that tells us that the Word of God is the final authority in our lives for doctrine and for practice. Lord, may we may trust in the Bible, may we study the Bible, may we live the Bible, and may Faith Bible Church be a beacon that people could come to where the Word of God shines brightly. Oh, Father, help us, we pray in Jesus' name, as we are dismissed together. If you are a guest or a visitor, thanks for being here with us this morning. We appreciate, appreciate you being here with us. We're going to have part two of this series next week, If you are a visitor, if you go out these doors to your left, right out in the lobby, there's a welcome center, and there's some folks there that'd love to meet you and give you some more information about our church. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we are dismissed. And now I commend you to the Word, to, to God, and to the Word of His grace, who are sanctified. All God's people said, Amen. The feet of your glory and grace I'll set the sights upon heaven I'm fixing my eyes on you oh, 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 oh.